Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed with host and author of the award-winning book of the same name, Lisa Lutan. Lisa has amazing tips to help you slow down, get healthy, manage your time, improve your relationships, and deal with stress. Now, here is Lisa Lutan. Hi, everybody. This is Lisa Lutan, your host of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed Radio. I am so excited to be here with you today to share my enthusiasm about health, wellness, and food with all of you, my lovely listeners. I have an amazing lineup of guests over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about health in a whole new way. Sure, we're going to talk about nutrition and exercise, but we're also going to talk about relationships, stress, and everything else that goes into making us feel good on a daily basis. Just to give you a little background about me, I'm a healthy living strategist, which means I help people figure out simple strategies to improve their health and happiness. Many years ago, I was a tech entrepreneur. I did not take care of myself, did not listen to my body, and did not do any of the things that I'm going to be advising all of you to do on this show. And so I crashed and burned, literally. It took me a couple of years to figure out what had gone wrong, and then another couple of years on how to make it right. And then I continued to self-hack excuse me, my lifestyle until I figured out what would it take for me to feel better than ever. And now, fast forward, I love helping other people figure out what's getting in their way from feeling their healthiest and happiness happiest. So my website is healthyhappyandhip.com. Again, that's healthyhappyandhip.com. I am so excited about our topic today, which is why are women drinking so much wine? And I have a fabulous, fabulous guest here with me to talk about this. Before introducing her though, I just wanna let you know that we will be welcoming your calls today and I really encourage you to call in. So, I'd like to welcome Gabrielle Glazer. Gabrielle is a journalist and author, most recently, of the New York Times bestseller, Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Her work has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine, The Economist, The Washington Post, and many, many other publications. Gabrielle, welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Gabrielle, I am such an incredible fan of your book. I recommend it all the time. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Oh, that's kind of a long story, but I'll try to give you the quick answer. I noticed a huge shift in the way women around me were drinking and even in the way that I was drinking um, between the years 1992 when I had my first daughter and 2001 when I had my third. And what really got me thinking about it was um, the baby gifts that I got after my third daughter was born. I already had all the pink ponies you could possibly ever want or need. We had all the baby stuff. And I lived in the New York area, as I do now. It was not so long after 9-11. The losses from the attacks were palpable, and people brought me wine as a baby gift. And, of course, I wasn't drinking it. I wasn't drinking at the time. I was pregnant, and then I was nursing. I had her in November. And it stuck with me as something that had really shifted in the culture. When I had my first child, as I said, in 1992, people weren't drinking. Women weren't talking about drinking. And something radically changed in my own life. And as a journalist, I started looking at some of the reasons um, culturally that this was, that my own life was mirroring my own life in terms of even my own consumption, my friend's consumption, culturally, the acceptance of, of, of wine drinking, there'd been a gigantic shift in those nine years. So that's what made me really start to, to want to look at it um, as a journalist. That is so fascinating. Um, I was pretty clueless about this issue. And um, something really interesting, which actually led me to your book, was I was leading these seven-day programs where we would give up 
soy, gluten, dairy, sugar, and alcohol. And I would always ask the women in the group what they were most nervous about giving up. And I always mm-hmm. thought they were going to say sugar because that's what my issue would have been. But mm-hmm. time and time again, I heard alcohol. And a few of the women in those groups said, have you read her best kept secret? <laughs> have you read this wow. book? Yeah, it was really fascinating. So not only did I read the book, but I started spreading the word about the book. And um, since then, thanks to you bringing this to light, I became much more aware and agree with you that this is such an untapped, huge issue. So Gabrielle, why are women drinking so much wine all of a sudden and and other alcohol as well? Well, you know, it isn't all of a sudden. um, There has been a a rising um, uh, curve over the past um, two decades. There are many reasons for that, and this is what I this is what I really looked hard to try to find out. I mean, it would be easy to say, "Oh, it's just stress," but in fact, there are there's a much deeper route to to that to our behaviors as there is for all of our behaviors when we see a big um, something that's that's that we can data points that we can actually track. We can track that women have been buying more wine. Um, they're consuming more, they're getting into trouble more, they're getting arrested more for drunk driving. We can, we can track that. So that's, it's actually a fact. This is something that's, that's, that's happening. And the reason is very simple. And epidemiologists point to one thing, and that is attending college. And that's because College is really dominated by heavily heavy drinking activities, whether it's football games or tailgates or dive bars. And women are introduced to those behaviors. Americans tend to binge drink. We are not a culture that sips our, our alcohol slowly and mindfully over a meal with other people. Um, we've normalized binge drinking. We've normalized really overdoing it. And that pattern starts in college, and it's really difficult to shake once it becomes, I don't want to say entrenched, but once it becomes, um, once it becomes part of your life. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was talking to my kids about this once and how when I was in college way back when, you know, people had a drink or two, and now the average is like 10 drinks in a night which really shocked me. Is that what you're hearing? Numbers yes. like that? Yes. And in fact, I share with you that, that, um, that, that sort of sense of shock because um, I was in college in the 1980s and overdoing it in those days, would say, I would say that would be having three drinks. Um, and also, I was in school in California for some reason. I don't know why... I, we were drinking beer, and I don't really like beer, and women of a certain generation, typically, there's, there's actually a biological reason for this, women tend to be more sensitive to bitter tastes and bitter flavors, and that's a, a protective, toxins tend to be more bitter, and it's a protective mechanism that our, our brain has to protect fetuses from potential harms and, and, and poisons when we're, when we're pregnant. Um, so I didn't drink that much beer, and neither did anybody else. But alcohol companies and wine marketers have really kind of turned their focus toward female population, and there is a huge push to market sweet drinks to women, um, when they're really young, when they're in high school, they're called Alcopops. They're like the Smirnoff. I think they're called oh, Smirnoff. I'm blanking on the name of them. I can see them, but I'm blanking like that, on like them. Like Mike's Lemonade, that kind of stuff? Yeah, like that. But they're also these flavors that are targeted specifically to, to populations. For example, in African-American communities, you can buy them at a, at a gas station. Their flavors, it's really pretty horrifying. It's, it's um, very stereotypical flavors, like, for example, grape and, and, and watermelon targeted to African-American communities, to Latino communities. Latina communities are targeting to young Hispanic girls and their um, coconut and, and mango and, and, and pineapple. And then in white communities, it's raspberry, cherry, and, 
like Jolly Rancher flavors, right? And so that's one thing, that the, 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 out, the what's available and what's being drunk is very, very different. And marketing is very much behind this. You know, people are watching what we do. You know, anybody who's on Google knows um, if you look at a pair of shoes for the next two weeks, you're going to get um, shoe sales popping up in your margins. And, you know, people know that we're, we're drinking, we're buying alcohol, we're, marketers know this too, and they know what girls like. Well, I remember reading in your book about how when California wine growers, grape growers started getting into wine, they directly targeted women. And I was, again, like fascinated by that. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how that started and why they decided to go after women as opposed to men? Yes. Um, after prohibition was lifted in the 19, in 1934, the wine industry had ground to a complete halt. And one thing that the vintners understood they, they needed to do was to get women interested in their product. So starting in the late 1940s through the 50s and well into the 60s and 70s, California vintners understood that um, women really had more power in the household than they may have had in earlier decades, and they were in charge of purchasing. So they started marketing, particularly in California, they started marketing wine directly to women. And one thing that I found really fascinating um, in a wine library, there were these photographs and videos of middle-aged housewives in grocery stores with several different, let's say, a bottle of Cabernet, a bottle of Rosé, and a bottle of, of, of Chablis. You know, this is this is the '60s, so nothing was fancy yet. And the middle-aged women would appeal to the younger women who were shopping as friendly, sort of aunt-like, older lady figures in your neighborhood who were going to hold your hand and introduce you to wine. Because in those days, I don't know if you remember this, but I certainly do. When I was growing up, we, if I went out to a fancy restaurant with my parents, this, the, the waiter or the maitre d' or the sommelier, I don't even know if there were some, we didn't, you know, we, I certainly didn't go to any restaurants where there were sommeliers, but the waiter would approach the man with the wine list, offer him the taste, offer him the cork. It was a very male-oriented and intimidating process. and I think that still happens. Well, it does, but much less so. Women buy 70% of the wine in this country. I think, I mean, it's true that at fancy restaurants that the man is far more likely to be offered the wine list than, than a woman is. You're absolutely right about that. But if I'm the one sitting down and I say, oh, I think we'd like a bottle of, you know, blank with dinner, then I live in, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in the New York area. Nobody would dare, I think, be so overtly sexist here because they would alienate so many of their customers. So I get the wine. I get wine lists quite a lot. You don't? Um, I do, but I think that if my husband is there next to me, they're going to hand it to him, you yeah, know, that's first. True. But that's, that's true. If, I mean, if, if yeah, you're right. I haven't done a scientific survey of that, but I also <laughs> go out. But I go out to dinner quite frequently, quite frequently with a friend of mine who's a wine columnist, and she knows everything about wine, and people know who she is. So my, yeah. my I might be my, my my sample might be might be skewed. So, but I think that is amazing that seventy percent of wine is purchased by women. Yes, I mean 70, that's amazing. Seventy percent. Of, of the wine in this country is purchased by women, and two-thirds of that is consumed by women. So women are drinking a lot of wine. And part of it is that, you know, first of all, in moderation, and I, I want to point out really, really strongly that wine in moderation is a perfectly normal, lovely thing. And I'm not, you know, 
championing abstinence or saying that women who drink are, 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 you know, have to pull back and stop drinking altogether. That's not my message at all. And I, I don't think that that's, and it's certainly not the message of, of a lot of the alcohol researchers whom I've gotten to know quite, quite well over the course of the last several years in reporting this. But, um, we have a tendency to think, well, if one or one and a half glasses or two glasses is good for me, then three is, is three is three is three is a lot better. And why not, you know, two thirds of the bottle? And that's where we start, I think, you know, edging into a little bit more risky territory. And that is the perfect place. We're going to stop in a minute to take our first commercial break. But when we come back, I really want to talk about that because that's something that I think a lot of women have questions. What is okay? What is considered social drinking? When, at what point am I getting into trouble? And I think that a lot of our listeners, and I know women I've worked with, are really asking themselves that question, like, when am I going overboard? So we'll take our first break right now, and then we'll be back in a couple moments and talk to Gabrielle. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at healthyhappyandhip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to be talking with Gabrielle Glazer. She's the author of an amazing book called Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Right before this break, we were talking about, you know, at what point is someone a social drinker and where does it cross over into being a problem? And I know obviously it varies for for everyone, but Gabrielle, can you shed some light on this issue? Yes. I First of all, I want to say one thing about the U.S. recommendations. The U.S. Um, recommendations suggest that you know, anything over a single drink a day for a woman is t- heading into risky territory. And there are several reasons for that. We have a lot of politics surrounding alcohol in our country, and the actual health recommendations, I don't want to you know, be racing out there and telling everybody, well, double your alcohol consumption. If you're, if you're not drinking two, two glasses of wine a day, you should be. That's not what I'm saying. But I am going to say that if people are worried, oh, gosh, I'm having more than one, that, does that mean I'm really, you know, in danger? No, it doesn't. Um, in Europe, the recommendations in most countries where wine is consumed regularly and healthfully and where women, by the way, live longer than we do by a considerable margin, um, you know, several, several years in the instances of Spain and Italy, for example, um, the recommendations are, are double and maybe even triple that. And again, I don't want to say, oh, if you're drinking a glass of wine a day, you need to be drinking three. Um, 
drink like the Italians. Well, number one, Americans aren't drinking like Italians. Italians are typically having a glass of wine at lunch and then maybe one and a half or two at dinner um, slowly. And Americans, as you know, as I said earlier, we tend to, one thing I'm sure we'll get to, maybe um, this is a good jump, jumping off point, um, women tend to come home from work or start their, the end of their day, their, the work part of their day, by unwinding with a glass of wine, it quickly becomes two, it quickly becomes, and that quickly becomes three, and that's where American women, as I, as I see it, and as I've, you know, had it be reported, um, and, as, and as I've reported, that's where uh, American women tend to differ from women elsewhere in in the, in, on the on the globe who consume alcohol differently. So, what you're saying? Let me see if I'm getting this right. Is women here are drinking more at that four or five o'clock time as opposed to with dinner and with lunch? Yes. Um, okay. Yes. Four, yeah, four o'clock. I don't know about the four. Maybe they are drinking at four o'clock. I mean, you know, I've I've never been to one, but I've certainly heard women talk about the play dates. My kids are older. I'm older um, than maybe some of your listeners. So the three o'clock wine play date was never something that was common. Again, when I had you know. You know, little ones in in the 1990s, and that has become a sort of cultural trope. So, yes, I would say there's a sizable number of women out there who are starting to consume alcohol in the late afternoon, and then they continue because it's hard to stop. Once you, it's sort of like going on a water slide. You know, if you mm-hmm. think back to the days, or if you imagine your kids going down a water slide, you can't really stop. You know, once you develop a habitual problem in which you're worried about your consumption, it is really difficult for a lot of people to stop at two, to put a hard stop and say, okay, that's it, no more for me. Because yeah. the, 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 you're, you're disinhibited, and it seems like a really great idea to keep pouring. And a lot yeah, of people I do. I see this so much. You know, what's so interesting with some of the younger women I work with, you know, Halloween has become a drinking holiday. You know, um, kids' sporting events have become drinking holidays. Like any opportunity Everything. for drinking holiday, it's it's really, really kind of shocking because I, too, I'm probably around the same age as you. This just wasn't happening when we were raising our kids. No, um, the, back to school the other night. Thing, back, back to, to school, school night. Is, back to school night <laughs> is, a, is a drinking holiday now. Yeah. I mean, and I don't mean to sound judgmental or, or you know, judgmental, but I know it's boring. I have three kids who range in age from 23 to, to 14, and nobody relishes going to back to school night, but <laughs> do you really need a flask to get through it? And that's when I think, okay, that would be, if I were... If I were the woman who's carrying around a flask to get through back to school night, I would, I would, I would, I would look at my stress levels and figure out a way to um, alleviate some of that um, that urge. I think that's a great point. You know, really kind of saying, "Hey, let's stop. Why am I drinking?" And you know, one thing I found super interesting. I ran a program called Lose the Booze. It's going to be called Take a Booze Snooze from now on because I saw this as such a big problem. And there was a whole bunch of women, you know, professional women in their 40s and 50s and older who, first of all, were like, oh, my God, I can't believe there's other people in this like me. Thank God I'm not alone. Uh, But they were coming home after work and really starting that that slow, I need a drink, I need another, I need another. Some of them, you know, having a whole bottle of wine a night, but very high-functioning, intelligent women. And... um, we did a little experiment where I said, maybe you're hungry at that time. Maybe mm-hmm. you're just super hungry. Try having a snack first. And it was quite remarkable, you know, how for many of the women, that just took care of it right then and there. They mm-hmm. had just gotten into a habit of drinking instead of eating. And so going back to that issue of like, why am I drinking in the first place, I think is a really good question for people to start asking themselves with no judgment, with no shame, just from a investigative approach to what's going on in their bodies. Right, exactly. And again, 
Once you develop a sort of psychological, I don't want to say dependence, I really want to stay away from those words because I think they're scary and they freak people out and I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you've gotten into this pattern then you you are, you know, there's no way back out. There are many, many, many ways back out. It's a bad habit just like any other bad habit and you can fix it. You can change it. And exactly as you said, sometimes this is one thing that I suggest to people. If you do, you come home, you're completely freaked out because you've had a really stressful day or you were stuck on a train or you were stuck in traffic. And the first thing that happens is, and we've all been there, you know, this one has college applications due. This one has a AP history report due. And you just want to decompress and get away from all of it, but you can't because this is modern life and you also are not away. We're not away from our phones nearly enough. I think our phones add to our stress level immensely. We're always checking them. We're never off. We're never away. Even, even if you, even if you I mean, nobody's away from them. It doesn't matter if you <laughs> if you have a high powered job in banking or finance or, or or political campaigning at the moment. Okay, political campaigning at the moment. Then you, you should have your phone with you. But but even friends of mine who don't work are constantly checking their phones, and we've got that's that's stressful. That is stressful. So put the phone down, put it away, give yourself a break, and take, you know, drink a big glass of seltzer, put some beautiful fruit in it, take your clothes off, go upstairs, take 10 minutes by yourself, get into comfortable clothes, give yourself some boundaries, set some boundaries for yourself before everybody's crawling all over you. And go ahead. I love that you just threw in the word boundary because that's exactly what I was thinking as you were speaking. Like, you know, take the phone thing. I personally just set some boundaries around my cell phone because I realized I was like a crack addict, you know, like, oh, I got to check my email. got to check my email. got to check my email. Well, why? You know, <laughs> like wait, it can wait. What are you expecting at 11 o'clock at yeah. night? Exactly. And I... Yeah, so I think that boundaries are such a useful thing with all health and wellness, and especially with drinking. And I'm just wondering, is that something that, you know, is recommended to women who want to drink less, who want to continue to drink and enjoy their wine, but just maybe not drink on certain days um, or just drink, you know, over the weekends? Have you... What does the research say with that approach to drinking less? The research is pretty clear about that. The Canadians, as always, um, in my opinion, have, I think, the most um, appealing, sensible, easy-to-follow guidelines of anybody, the Canadians and the Australians. The Canadians say, and this really, I really um, try to follow this and, and do a very good job you know, do a pretty good job at it. Um, the Canadians suggest, Canadian guidelines suggest taking two nights off from drinking, at least two nights off from drinking, and never drink more than two drinks. So limit your drinks to 10 a week, and that's pretty easy to do. You can, I mean, that's, you know, if you're drinking two glasses of, if, you're, if you are splitting a bottle of wine a night with your partner, you can stop that by not drinking on Sunday nights, not drinking on Monday nights, or not drinking, you know, well, choose, your, choose your nights and start out, start out with that. It's really difficult when people have gotten into a daily habit to say, okay, stop drinking, period. As you said, it was a really scary thing for people to give up. It's much easier for people to give up coffee or gluten or sugar. A friend of mine um, who has two cigarettes a night, she's French, she has two cigarettes a night, probably three glasses of wine a night and three cups of coffee a day. She said, well, I have to be healthier, so I'm giving up coffee. <laughs> well, frankly, the better thing to give up would be cigarettes. But, right. but you know, that was her, she just chose coffee as her thing that was the most damaging, but it was also the easiest to give up. And coffee, three cups of coffee is not, you know, I mean, three, actually three cups of coffee, the research on that is pretty clear. Three cups of coffee might give you a faster heartbeat, but it's not 
going to harm your health. So maybe time to (laughs) re-examine some of those, some of those choices. But um, the boundary thing, I think, first of all, what the research shows is that those two nights off helps reset your brain from having developed this habit. It, it, you get out of the, the, the need, the craving, whatever it is. It's not, even if it's not craving, it's just a habit. If you just say, nope, I'm not drinking these nights, it's a pretty easy rule to, it's a pretty easy rule to follow. And it does help your brain if you have gotten into a pattern of thinking you need to consume alcohol every, every day, you know, in copious amounts. It just helps you dial back. But what about for those people that say, okay, I'm going to stop at two drinks, but then they can't. Like, it's just hard. You know, just like for some people, once they have the first cookie, they want to eat the whole box of cookies. For some people, the same thing with wine. Like, how do they navigate that? Well, that's the $64,000 question because not everybody... All right, let me put it this way. 18 million Americans have what's called now alcohol use disorder. So they fall somewhere on a spectrum. They might be mildly um, drinking. They might be risking, they might be drinking riskily at a very mild, on the mild end of the spectrum. They might be moderately drinking in a risky fashion, fashion, or they might be seriously, you know, harming their health and drinking a bottle and a half of wine a night and still functioning or maybe not functioning or, you know, they're risking their marriage, they're risking their, their jobs, they're getting into fights with their spouses and their kids. And those are people who might want to take a look, the people on the, on the risky end of the spectrum might want to take a look at abstinence um, because their brain chemistry, we don't, there's not a single gene for, oh, you have a you know, addictive personality. There's no such thing as an addictive personality. There's absolutely no science to suggest that that is, um, in fact, a thing. Um, However, you might be vulnerable to feeling better on alcohol than most people. And that's what we need to reshape the conversation around. If you are one of those people who the first time you took a drink absolutely felt that you were in, you know, you'd reached nirvana. This was the answer to everything. This was the answer to your social anxiety. This was the answer to your feeling pretty. This was the answer to your feeling more at home in the world. And that's one, that, that's one, one kind of red flag. The second red flag is that um, at an early age or whenever one began their drinking career, you were very easily and swiftly able to drink more than other people without showing any ill effects. So without having a hangover the next day, without seeming to appear inebriated, these are factors that indicate maybe your brain chemistry and alcohol are not going to be a great mix. Or, or, you know, some would say, well, they were too perfect a mix for you know, the beginning of, of problem, problematic drinking, right? Um, so that's one thing that people need to ask themselves, and that's a hard question. You know, these are and hard it, questions. And is there, like, a genetic component in there? Yes, there is. But, again, I want to steer away from saying, oh, well, there's an alcoholic gene. What I do want to say is that, if there is this pattern of drinking in your family and you yourself have experienced this kind of incredible sense of well-being with alcohol and only with alcohol, those are, those are warning signs. And those are typically people who find themselves in the pattern of, well, I used to drink two drinks a night, but now it's, it's gotten up to six and I'm really in trouble and I'm really scared. What do I do? Hmm. This is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I remember hearing some stat years ago that if you start the age you started drinking had a mm-hmm. big impact on whether you had a tendency toward alcoholism. And and are they even using the word alcoholism anymore? Or are now they saying alcohol use disorder instead? Yes, thank you for that clarification because that word alcoholism and alcoholic, those are words that are really binary. 
and they sort of indicate, well, you're either an alcoholic or you're not. And you're either, you know, you either have this problem and you can never take another drink again or you're not. And the research shows that even for people who do get into trouble with alcohol, um, the majority of, of those people, A, self-correct, they get they just get sick of it and they, they self-correct. They either go abstinent by themselves or they, they learn how to moderate on their own. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is that it's such a judgmental word, you know, alcoholic, alcoholism. It's sort of, it just, it's sort of, we've, it's a word that, that came into being in the 1930s and we've, you know, science has come a very long way in understanding addiction and understanding how the brain works and understanding how the brain responds to different a variety of different drugs. So thanks for that clarification because the new term, as clunky as it is, and it is clunky, uh, is, is alcohol use disorder. And again, that, right. that denotes a spectrum. So we're going to talk, continue this conversation, and we're going to be going to break in a minute. But um, this is so fascinating, and I bet people are cheering on right now that it is a spectrum. It's not like so black and white, either I'm an alcoholic or I'm not, because I think for so many people, it is an area of gray as opposed to black and white. So we will continue with Gabrielle after the break, and I do welcome callers. Call in with your questions, and we'll be back shortly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's Healthy, Happy, and Hip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at healthyhappyandhip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hello, everybody. We're in the middle of an amazingly fascinating conversation with Gabrielle Glazer, author of Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink, and How They Can Regain Control. We have a caller on the line, Lauren, with a question. Hi, Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad I read your Facebook message. Hi, Gabrielle. How are you? Hi, Lauren. I see Lisa all the time. She's my guru. But I'm, I'm listening to this conversation, and I think it's wonderful. And sadly, I can relate in many ways. Um, you know, I definitely agree that it's a habitual thing. And I also have to say, you know what? When you're hungry, when you're hungry at that hour, at like that 5 o'clock hour, and you're not eating, I definitely go for the drink. But I'm not a wine drinker. I like the vodka. Um, I also find that, you know, I also find that, I don't know, it's, it's definitely 
I, I, I wrote a couple of notes here. Oh, yeah, there's a spectrum, and I agree with you. And it's, I wonder where I am on the spectrum. Sometimes I wonder if it's too much. But um, it's all fascinating, Gabrielle, and I am going to read your book. Um, I, I bet it's wonderful. Um, so, you know what, I'm really enjoying this conversation, and I definitely relate in so many ways. Um, yeah, so I, I, I want to hear about your story. So I, I will definitely read your book. Oh, well, thank Please. you. Yeah. So, Lauren, what yeah, makes no. you, you know, what, is there something that's, 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 you know, like when you, what is it that makes you want to reach for the vodka? Well, you know what, I guess I'm in a stressful business and, you know, I didn't drink when I was young. When I was raising children, I did mm-hmm. not have a drink. I never drank alcohol. On a Saturday night, if I had one drink, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think that in life as I got older, so I'm 57 going on 58, and I think as I got older and I became career-oriented and I have very poor eating habits, as Lisa will know, and um, I just think that I think the stress and, and being tired, that 5 o'clock hour for me, it's like I come home, I've got a lot on my plate. Yes, the phone is very, very bad because I'm always on email, always right. email or text because of my business. And I just, that drink calms me down. It calms mm-hmm. me down. Mm-hmm. Well, does it become two or three or do you stop at one? No, I don't stop at one. Yeah. I, I definitely, I can definitely, and I pour my own drinks. <laughs> right, right, so right, right. So it's definitely two. Well, it's really gutsy for you to say this and, you know, for you to talk about this, but it doesn't sound to me, if, if it's two, I mean, look, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to give you medical advice, but what would it be if you came home and did something else the first before you poured the first Drink. Well, there, you know, it's funny, okay. Gabrielle, because if I eat at 4 o'clock, okay, I'm full. I don't go and have a drink. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like stuffed. I'm satisfied. I'm done. And mm-hmm. so basically, if I haven't eaten much during the day because I'm on the go and I have had no time and I'm busy, mm-hmm. you know, so I guess maybe it's, I don't know if it's a sugar thing or if it's, it's definitely, it, it, you know, it, it's in place of food. So right. If I eat at 4 o'clock, so if I wait for my husband to eat at 6.30, forget it, all right? That's like late already for me. So a lot of times now to help myself, I will eat at 4. And and at four, I'm satisfied. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm good for the rest of the night. I don't pour that drink. So that's something I can control on that four o'clock hour. Right. And that's so good to share with listeners, Lauren. I really appreciate that because as I said before, (laughs) no, but I think it is something that people don't realize. So many people listening who can relate. It's just I'm very honest about it. Right. And um, yeah, and believe me, and it is a habit. Well, it is, and you know something else that sounds ridiculous, you know, all of us are mothers here, and, you know, we've raised, you said you had kids, Lisa, you have kids. My kids are already older, they're gone. Okay, right, but you have, how many do you have? 27. You have two? Yes, 31 and 27. Okay, and Lisa, you? I have three kids. Okay, so among us, we have eight children. And when our kids were little, what did we do? We we had this, you know, ridiculous or totally processed, this, you know, crap that I bought my kids when they were growing up, which was not healthy, but those, you know, yogurt, go-gurts, you know, I always kept them. I always kept snacks for my kids when they were Absolutely. little. Absolutely. And why don't we follow the same advice for ourselves? I get hungry, too, and I eat, I have a really healthy diet, but sometimes I'm starving and I realize I have to keep this is ridiculous. I'm 52 years old. But I realized only about two years ago I needed to keep yeah. a jar of almonds in the car, you know, or a big yeah. thing of, 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 you know, big thing from Trader Joe's of nuts in the car. And guess what? Not only I eat them and need them to refuel during the day, but so do other people. I'm refueling that carton of almonds in my car all the time. And... It's sometimes it's, I was going to you know mention this to you, Lisa, later in the program because I think it's just it's, it's really important to remember we need fuel. And yes, you know, know. you, you and mentioned Lisa that advocates that she's she definitely advocates clearly that. she was the first person you know you're one of the first person I've heard to actually zero in on that. So 
Um, I, th- I think there's a big issue, you know, we need to take care of ourselves the way we would take care of our children. And that means, you know, making sure we get a good night's sleep, making sure we have snacks with right. us, making sure that our well-being is okay. Because especially as moms, if we're not okay, the whole family's not okay. And I love what you said before, Gabrielle, like, what can you do instead? You know, when you get home, you need to transition and and give yourself a little break, a little time to kind of get back to the, the program. And so maybe the wine isn't the best bet. Exactly. And there's something else I want to mention. Someone who I interviewed for a story had really, really, really great program for herself. She followed a harm reduction program that she she got. She really was in a problem. Her business had failed. She was the breadwinner for the family. This was during the downturn, 2009. She thought she was going to lose her business and she was her her drinking accelerated from a bottle of wine today to go include I don't know, a lot of vodka as well. And she was really in trouble. And mm-hmm. she, but she didn't want to stop drinking. She didn't want to be person who could never drink alcohol again. So she followed this program, a harm reduction program, in which she was abstinent for two weeks or 30 days, and she slowly reintroduced wine, and she kept a diary of her feelings, her cognition, and her, her, her physical capabilities after each glass of wine. So after one glass of wine, she wrote all of those things, how she was feeling, the clarity of her thoughts, her mind, what she was able to do, what she was enjoying. After two glasses of wine, she did the same. After three, she did the same. After four, I think she kept them on file, like note cards. And, you know, she went back to, as an experiment, she went back to drinking the fourth glass of wine or finishing the bottle, and she looked at her handwriting. She, she taped them up on the refrigerator like you would do, you know, for a little kid for their homework, and she looked at that, and it was a reminder to her that after the second glass of wine, she wasn't able to enjoy her music. She was actually um, um, you know, amateur musician. She wasn't able to write lyrics. She wasn't able to watch Mad Men and remember it. This is when Mad Men was really, you know, the big thing. And she wasn't able to read books. And I don't have a a problem with alcohol. I've had, you know, periods of stress in my life where I've relied on it too heavily, and I get from the two-drink-a-day to the three-drink-a-day, and I'm able to recognize it and dial back. But I also realized, and this has to do with the phone as well, I spend so much damn time on my phone or reading email at night or looking at Facebook or looking at Twitter or following the political. I'm obsessed with, you know, the the election. And so I'm following that. And I'm not reading books. I have... (laughs) My book consumption has completely diminished in inverse proportion to my phone consumption. I think we all can relate to that one. Yeah, we I, can. Well, at least yes. you're not drinking. And uh, I think that's how we used to relax. You, mm-hmm. I used to fall asleep almost every single night reading a book. And, you and, know, I'll tell you something. I read a, I was reading last night before I went to sleep for the first time in a while. And I had the best night's sleep I've had in a while. And so I think that that's such a great point. You know, we need to go back to nourishing ourselves with things that are actually good for us. You know, right. rather than kind of distracting ourselves or numbing out, you know, with the food or the alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is. And going back to really, you know, I keep coming back to let's do a little investigative work into what's really going on in my body and my life so that I can feel healthy and happy because that's the goal. You know, right. that's the goal with all of this. And if a glass of wine makes you feel good and you can stop at that, great. But when it's becoming a problem, maybe we need to do a little bit more exploration. Exactly. Right. right. You know, so I want to ask you guys right a question, and, and Lauren, feel free to stay on the line if you'd like to uh, help answer this question. But, you know, for a lot of people who are taking a break, you know, and I do recommend take a break just to see how you feel, there's a stigma, just as much of a stigma as, you know, having an alcohol problem, there's a big stigma about not drinking. And so I'm just curious, you know, what you guys think of that. We only have a few minutes left of the show, but like, you know, what are some tips for people who are going out? Their social life depends on drinking. People ask them and look at them funny if they don't drink. And, you know, what do you have to say about that? 
Wouldn't that be the younger generation, though? Nope. Our generation as well. It's a big thing. Yeah, I think I think that um, when people say, um, I'm just having seltzer, immediately the eyebrows raise. Oh, do you have a problem? So, I mean, at this point, nobody's pregnant, right? I mean, in, right. in our age group, so right. that's not the issue. And then there's... You know, I know people who fib and say, they fib all, all sorts of ways. They say, oh, I'm on antibiotics and I'm not supposed to drink alcohol. They, because it's just easier than, to explain than, than to say, I'm taking a break. And personally, I think that's sort of ridiculous. Um, or um, people whose, whose business connections, um, as you said, Lisa, really rely on the conviviality of a drink with clients, um, they go to the bartender and say, can you pour me, you know, just give me a glass of water on the rocks and make it look like vodka on the rocks. So Mm -hmm. these are not, I'm not suggesting that we do this. I think we should be transparent. But I also think destigmatizing alcohol problems is as important as normalizing, no, I don't drink every night and I'm fine with that or I'm taking a break. You know, George Clooney at one point gave some comments saying, um, I'm giving my a break for the month of January. And it, it really, it helped, I think, other people say, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. George Clooney can do it. I can do it. You know, Gabrielle, we're, we're running out of time. Can you let people know where they can find your book, Her Best Kept Secret? Oh, thanks, Lisa. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, uh, it's from Simon & Schuster, Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Perfect. And I just want to let people know. Oh, thanks, Lauren. I want to let people know that um, I will be offering a course, Take a Booze Snooze, which is a 10-day no-alcohol challenge for social drinkers. And if you'd like to get on a wait list for the next one, just go to my website, healthyhappyandhip.com slash booze snooze, and you can get on the wait list. I'll just notify you when the next one's going to start. I run them every so often. So it's been such a pleasure today, Gabrielle. I can't thank you enough. And thank you, Lauren, as well, you know, for coming on the show today, talking about this super, super important topic. And I wish we had more time to even talk about the whole destigmatization, because I think that alone is um, an important conversation. But uh, everybody, run out and buy Gabrielle's book. It's an amazing book. And and I know you have something else coming. Do you want to give us a quick uh, tip on what's coming next oh, from you? It's early on in the pipeline. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's early in the pipeline at the beginning of the process. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an investigation into a, adoption practices in the mid-century from, in the U.S. from 1950 to 1972. So if you saw the movie Philomena... Um, there were 4 million American Philomenas and 4 million uh, adult adoptees, many of whom cannot find uh, their birth mother's identity because of secrecy laws. So I'm, I'm taking a big look into that. Sounds amazing. Again, thanks so much. And thank you all, our lovely listeners. And we'll be back next week. you've enjoyed today's episode on busy stressed and food obsessed did you get some great ideas from today's show join lisa lutan again next thursday at 9 a.m pacific time and 12 noon eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel have a great week again for